Good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand, I'd like to welcome you all to our Forensic Accounting Special Interest Group Lunch and Learn. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Adam Gilliberti. I'm the New South Wales representative of the Forensic Accounting Special Interest Group. Before I start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet, the Gadjikul people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I'd also like to pay my respects to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people present here today. Just imagine things, toilets uh, located just outside and um, in the event of a fire, uh, the stairs are located adjacent to the webs. Today is the third and final of, uh, lunch and learn session for the Forensic Accounting Special Interest Group and Practitioners. Uh, in our first session for 2019, we heard from the Australian Taxation Office uh, on dispute resolution practices they'd like to adopt, as well as from a leading tax barrister, Chris Peden, on the place of own judgment. In our second lunch and learn, we heard from leading technology practitioner Michael Bacina from Piper Alderman on blockchain technology, uh, and he also cleared up some misconceptions on cryptocurrency. Today, it's fantastic to see the great turnout once again, packed house for our lunch and learn. Um, we have the usual forensic accounting specialists and practitioners here present, but we also have a number of business, business and corporate advisors. Um, for those business and corporate advisors working at the coalface with corporate clients, um, you probably know, unfortunately, all too well what happens when uh, there's internal fighting within a company and the focus that gets taken away and the impact it has on the bottom line. Probably also know that forensic accountants may be able to assist in that dispute resolution process. So I hope you took the opportunity to network and mingle amongst yourselves before sitting with us at the moment. Today we have commercial litigator James Dapici uh, present to lead a discussion with us on this complex area of law involving claims for corporate oppression. Uh, he's going to lead us with several practical examples of recent cases to guide us. James is a corporate and commercial litigator acting for private clients and SMEs, or small medium enterprises, as we know. His practice includes some work also in the privacy and intellectual property space. He was admitted as a solicitor in 2008 following work at other law firms, joined Mackinson Departure in 2014. James is um, an authority on the topic of corporate oppression and assists business advisors and clients who need to know how to guide warring um, factions away from oppressive conduct. But when oppressive conduct occurs, one of the court's favourite rem remedies is a share sale following evaluation an area in which forensic accountants can assist. Some of you may be likely aware that James has developed a significant following online, commencing a series of videos called Copy and a Case Note. 
through this process, James has the opportunity to reflect at a fairly in-depth level, I might add, on recent legal decisions over a coffee uh, on corporate depression. Does it in a way that's both rigorous and approachable, and dare I say, fairly entertaining, considering the topic. <laughs> it is with great pleasure that I invite to the lectern, on behalf of Chartered Accounts Australia New Zealand, James Dapperton. Thanks to you all. Adam, thanks to you. That was a very generous introduction, very kind. Um, and thanks to Chartered Accountants Australia, New Zealand. Uh, I've got one gripe with you, Adam. It's, it's not a difficult area. It's, uh, it's great fun, corporate oppression. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to uh, offer you all a few insights that will just ground you um, a little more in this area. Now. Uh, if I can return to agreeing with uh, the things Adam kindly said, um, one of the most common remedies the court turns to uh, if corporate oppression is found is a share sale. And so what I have in the back of my mind today is that front-end business advisory practitioners uh, might be of the view that we want to advise our corporate clients to avoid circumstances like this and respectfully uh, our back-end uh, dispute resolution-flavoured forensic accountants might have an interest in, uh, in getting some work doing some share valuations uh, in the case of a share sale. So what I'm going to try to do is bring value to those advising clients attempting to avoid these sorts of situations and also bring value to back-end forensic practitioners who might find themselves in the thick of a discussion about valuation. So I've called the discussion prelude to a share sale, and arguably, often, um, that is what a piece of corporate oppression litigation is. Um, it is a uh, dispute, uh, often relating to steps taken by directors, and uh, as we've said, the final step is, offering, is often the ordering of a share sale. But more than that, um, an oppression suit can threaten the very existence of a company because the other uh, regular outcome of a successful oppression suit can be a wind-up. Uh, so your client's very existence is threatened if you're in the corporate advisory space. And so what I say is that these solemn consequences, the fact that the, literally, the literal existential threat of a corporate oppression suit demands of corporate advisors that they understand the area, even just in general terms. We're still on the title slide. So hopefully uh, I've made those arguments <laughs> on that slide successfully. Um, and just while we're at the preliminary phase of this discussion, I might also say that uh, this is a bit of a crunchy area and you might have questions as we go through. You're most welcome to hold those to the end, but please feel equally welcome just to yell out or, or stand up or jump up and down or um, draw a sign uh, for me to come and read. Um, that's fine, so please do interrupt, do ask questions, do participate. Please feel very welcome to do that. So what are you going to be participating in? What are you going to feel welcome doing? Um, today, what I'm hoping to work through is uh, sort of five steps. We're going to have a chat about the law, and that's going to be the ugliest, most difficult bit. We're going to deal with this concept of commercial unfairness. What does it mean? 
how does Section 232 and 233 of the Corps Act operate? That's going to be the ugliest, crunchiest, hardest bit of the talk. Uh, then we're going to put some meat on the bones of that discussion uh, by working through some examples. So we'll have fuzzy heads after we learn about the law, and then hopefully things will get a little bit clearer once we work through how this stuff looks when the rubber hits the road. We're then going to have a brief aside uh, about a recent decision in May this year of the New South Wales Court of Appeal that uh, was a dispute between valuers and their insurers. And um, as professionals who probably look reasonably closely at, closely at their insurance policies, and hopefully we'll never have to rely on them, of course, uh, I thought there might be some value in just crunching through that. Yes? Yes, sorry, I've used the expression front-end, back-end, um, because it's uh, the way lawyers go about it. So I'll start with a legal example, and then I'll uh, draw the analogy I have in my head when I'm reflecting on, on the accounting profession. So in the legal profession, uh, the front-end, back-end distinction is between the front-end transactional advisory sort of practitioners who are out there doing deals, shaking hands, drafting agreements and the back-end litigators like me who are there when everything falls apart and we're arguing over the, uh, over the ashes, <laughs> over the ruins, as it were. And so I've stolen that sort of legal front-end transactional uh, metaphor, applied it to business advisory, tax advisory, corporate advisory accountants, and I've stolen the back-end sort of disputes litigious metaphor to sort of have a view towards valuations and forensics and that sort of thing when, when a dispute looms. Um, does that make sense? That... Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I understand what you're saying there. Okay, well, thank you for the, thank you for the question, appreciate it. Because um, it's, it's a theme we might, we might return to of me trying to bring value on the advisory or the, or the pre-dispute <laughs> the pre-dispute state of affairs and then the uh, back-end forensic post-dispute state of affairs. I guess pre- and post-dispute might be a way of, perhaps a clearer way of setting it out. Um, so let us march in to the difficult bit. We're probably going to die for about 10 or 12 minutes working through this law and then we'll emerge on the other side, I promise. So this is the part of the discussion when things get a little bit fuzzy but don't worry, we will, uh, we will get through it together. What is corporate oppression? Uh, it is a number of things. Uh, it's been described as the most effective minority shareholder remedy. And while that may be true, uh, it's important to remember that it is a remedy not merely available to minority shareholders. It's a remedy available to one. It's available to some. It's available to all. So it can be 1% of the membership of a company, it can be 49% or 50% or 51% or 99% or 100%. It's an action available regardless of shareholding, but because of its power, uh, it's often put to use by minority shareholders. And it concerns this word that we're going to come back to, this phrase, forgive me, that we're going to come back to from time to time of commercial unfairness. So uh, it's, a, it's a phrase that, uh, speaking respectfully to my colleagues, 
lawyers aren't always on top of. Um, and so it's a phrase that uh, I think we can forgive ourselves for requiring a couple of moments to come to grips with. And we'll take those moments today and then we'll use some examples to really put some meat on the commercial unfairness bones. So, section 232 is our, what I'll call, jurisdictional section. It's our first step when we're thinking about corporate oppression. And I've extracted it for you in the, for you in the paper. I'm not going to work through it because we'll all get very, very bored. But in short, it says that the court is able to make an order, it may make an order, if the conduct of a company's affairs, an actual or proposed act, or the passing of a resolution or contemplation of a future resolution is unfair, if it's unfairly prejudicial, discriminatory, contrary to the interests of members. In essence, if we boil 232 down, it is a jurisdictional section that says the court may make section 233 orders if there's commercial unfairness. Now, you should be feeling confused right now. You're very entitled to feel confused, but I promise by the end of this, we will be holding hands and uh, jumping up and down about section 232. Yes, please. Yes. Yes. Uh, often it'll be a dispute with the board is the short answer to that. So, so sorry, I might, I might repeat that question if that's okay. It's a very good question. Um, the question was, um, if the dispute relates to 100% of the members, and for shorthand today we'll say 100% of the shareholders, why would there be any dispute at all? And my sort of quick answer was, it could be the conduct of the board. Um, you, uh, uh, that I expect would be a, a fairly um, complete answer, but there are also other um, circumstances as well where agents and um, but in essence, uh, board versus shareholders is where the hundred percent shareholding often comes up. Uh, depends on what remedy they want, and that's the scary. That's often the scary bit. Um, but that's actually a very good practical suggestion for uh, a matter I think I've got coming in on Monday. So, so, so thank you. Um, so if we can linger in section 232 for a moment, if I can ask you to note a couple of things. Firstly, the court may make orders if there's commercial unfairness. There's a discretion. Secondly, there's almost no limitation placed on the conduct. It could have happened in the past. It could be happening now. It could be happening in the future. It could be few contemplated future conduct. So there's a huge range of conduct that could be commercially unfair. And the third thing uh, is me returning to that earlier point about it could be one shareholder, 50% of shareholders, 100% of shareholders. It can be any proportion. And when I say shareholders, what I mean in the technical legal sense is members, but we'll use those terms interchangeably for the purpose of today's discussion, if you'll, if you'll forgive me. So let's just linger on section 232 one moment longer. Section 232 says the court may make section 233 orders if 
there's commercial unfairness. So what are Section 233 orders if the court thinks there's something commercially unfair? They're pretty scary. Um, uh, the company can be wound up. That's the very existential threat. There can be a share sale. That'll be a thrust of our discussion today. Um, a pretty scary one that I, that I haven't yet found a decision on. Um, the constitution of a company can be amended. The court can make orders going in and messing about with the constitution. Uh, the court can cause uh, proceedings to be instituted, can make certain people sue others, or can make certain people defend others, can make the company do all sorts of things. Uh, and a person, any person, can be required to do a specified act. So we're talking a broad, broad, broad palette from which the court can paint. So let me just review what we've said. Section 232, if there's commercial unfairness, the court can make a Section 233 order. What can a Section 233 order be? Almost anything. So, Section 232, remember it's conduct that could be future, past, present, contemplated. So, if any of that conduct is commercially unfair, Section 232, then the court may make any number of these amazing range of orders pursuant to Section 232. We're going to understand this better, I promise. This isn't the end of the journey. Uh, Justice Austin has uh, a useful judgment in Tomanovich that I call Tomanovich that I won't take you through too closely, but I'll just linger for a moment on the purpose of the relief. This is going to make sense, I promise. Uh, the purpose of the relief, which is to say, the purpose of our two, three, three orders, this huge range of orders that can be made, is to end the oppression. And Justice Stevenson said some useful things in a decision called Munsterman that we're going to come to. And I don't intend to linger too much on these points. You've got them there in the paper. And everything's going to make a lot more sense once we get to our examples. Yes? Yeah, one thing that I didn't think I saw up there. Yes. Would be a shareholders agreement? Ah, yes. This is... So, if you turn to page blah... Um, the, in short, sorry, the question was, um, one thing I didn't see earlier in the talk was a shareholders agreement. The answer to that is 100% right. Um, vaccine trumps cure. If any of you are in corporate advisory uh, or general business advisory and you want to manage the risks of this, get a shareholders agreement yesterday. Um, and that's a point we'll come to later on. So that's 100% spot on. Um, so we're walking towards a shareholders agreement. Yes. That goes to um, the issue of fairness or unfairness. Yes. Something on that. Precisely. Or alternatively, there can be an agreement in place where I say, look, I was complying with this. You agreed with it three years ago. What's the problem? And so it waters down my opponent's argument. If all I'm doing is complying with the agreement, then I say, what's the problem? You agreed. And so um, your client is, is protected in that way because your client then has a clear understanding of what it has to do or what he, she, it, they have to do um, and what they can do in other cases. These are, these are very good questions. Please, like, this makes you all 
double, triple, super welcome to yell out questions. Thank you. Um, so we were sort of sk slightly skimming over Munsterman because I don't want to drown you guys in too much case law, sorry, in too much principle just at the moment because we'll work through some facts a bit later that I think will assist. But I'd like to bring to your attention two points. Uh, they are the fourth and fifth bullet on this slide. And I'll just spend a moment with them. That a director can act oppressively but not breach her or his duties. That conduct of any kind, whether it's the companies or the boards or an agents or shareholders, can be oppressive notwithstanding it being otherwise lawful. So there is no requirement of a breach of fiduciary duties, no requirement of a breach of Corporations Act director's duties, no requirement of a breach of a shareholder's agreement, no requirement of a breach of a constitution, no requirement of misleading and deceptive conduct, no requirement of fraud, no requirement of anything. Nothing else except commercial unfairness. And that is because, as you now know, Section 232 has a really broad definition of what commercial unfairness can be. And commercial unfairness can even be conduct that is otherwise legal. So, I told you it was a fun area of practice. This is great. Um, and I'll drag you to our first bullet and the two sub-bullets on this slide, just in relation to timing. Right. When a matter comes before the court, the question in relation to liability, which is to say, the question in relation to was there commercial unfairness, 232, the relevant answer to that question is the day proceedings are commenced, today, the day I filed my summons. The section 233 question of what orders are we going to make, if any, remembering it's discretionary because the court may make an order. So the section 233 question, what orders should we make? Well, that question is answered on the day of the hearing. This is going to make more sense when we work through an example, but I want to have in your head that we might commence proceedings today, 15 November 2019. Uh, we messed about for a couple of years with evidence and we're on for hearing in early 2022. Now, um, and, and some of you doing doing back-end work um, or litigation work will know that even that long time frame might be a little bit optimistic, but, uh, <laughs> but we'll leave court timetables for another time. But in essence, the question will be, was it oppressive today, the day we filed the summons, section 232? And the second question is, all right, as at today, 2020, as at today, future today, <laughs> as in the future, 2022, what orders should we make, if any, right now to cure the oppression. And we're going to see a couple of cases where there was oppression found. It was terrible that the directors did whatever they did. It was terrible that whatever happened, happened. But the court decides not to exercise its discretion because at the time of the hearing, at the time the thing's being finalised, there's no oppression currently ongoing. There's nothing to cure. Even though it's a bit sad what happened in the past, well, there's nothing to worry about now. So section 232, was there commercial unfairness? Section 233, what orders, if any, are we going to make about it? Sorry, James, who gets Please. lost orders in a situation Oh, like that. yes!
This is a great question. The question is who gets cost orders um, in relation to a position like that? So we're going to have a case, this is such a good question. Um, we're going to have a case where a plaintiff proves uh, corporate oppression, proves section 232, unfairness, and fails to get any order made, right? So there was all this awful behaviour and those naughty old directors and, oh, wasn't it terrible? Fine. The court, for reasons we'll go to, valuation reasons to spoil the ending, um, says, well, you didn't suffer anything. You are not today, as at the date of hearing, suffering anything because you got a great price for your shares. You're not suffering and so I'm not going to make an order and so you fail and so you pay the naughty director's legal fees. And so, as you can imagine, something running for three, four, five, six years, they're in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the cost question is a very, very wise one. So you might have a client who says, oh, it's terrible, Blogsy and Smithy, they're the worst directors ever, they're doing all this mean stuff. And you might say, yes, that's very mean and disappointing and it may indeed be commercially unfair. But the question we have to ask ourselves is are we going to be able to convince the court to make an order from this broad palette? Are we going to convince the court to make an order for a share sale, to make an order for a wind-up? This is fuzzy stuff and you guys are doing really well and we're nearly done with the hardest bit. Then we've got examples to come to put some flesh on these bones. Oh, they're coming very, very quickly. All right. All I want to leave you with when talking about the law of corporate oppression is that 232, 233. 232, a huge range of conduct can be commercially unfair, past, present, future. Section 232, the court may make a huge range of orders if it wants, if there is commercial unfairness found. Let's talk. What I say is, and I hope you agree, that our term commercial unfairness that's so important to us today is sufficiently vague uh, and, and as I said to you earlier, it, it, it troubles everyone. It certainly troubles lawyers um, and I do my best to make it trouble my opponents as best I can. Um, but what I say is that in order to aid our collective understanding in this room, uh, there'll be value in clicking through a couple of examples. I hope you agree with that because we're going to devote a bit of time now to really crunching through how this stuff looks when the rubber hits the road. Oppression generally incurs in smaller companies rather than larger ones. And that's just a, a point I'll make. If, I'm, if I feel that the board of BHP are being oppressive in the way they go about things, well, I've, I've probably got a reasonable avenue to uh, sell my shares and get out of there. The argument that I'd make to the court to get any Section 233 relief, despite me getting up on Section 232 commercial unfairness, would be pretty flimsy because the court says, oh, just sell your shares. There's a market for them, sell them. And so what we find is that in corporate oppression, it's often your proprietary companies, your smaller companies, that have two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight shareholders, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight directors, and rarely more. And so someone's frustrated and irritated and trying to get out, which is a great way, a great thing to deal with in the shareholders agreement <laughs> that we'll come to later. So what I hope is um, that some of these examples are going to put some flesh on the bones of Section 232 and 233 for you. Some examples of corporate oppression, this is just in short, uh, mini board meetings, 
the majority getting together and sorting out what they're going to do before the actual board meeting, uh, excluding directors from management in certain circumstances, uh, the inability of a minority shareholder to sell, that's only in circumstances as well, failure to investigate some payments, again, that's only in certain circumstances. And I raise these examples in really brief dot points to say that it's not the examples so much as me saying in certain circumstances that's the relevant point. Corporate oppression is always going to be case by case. Commercial unfairness is always going to be a bit of a fuzzy concept. And there will be times when the inability of a minority shareholder to sell her or his shares, or his, it's their shares, is not going to be oppressive. And there'll be times when it is oppressive. Yes? Equally applies. So if the directors are shareholders as well, a shareholder as well, can he or she or it, no, sorry, he or she sue? The answer is yes. No, but they could be Potentially. It's just a, a matter we'd try to deal with in pleadings or potentially the, the appointment of, of, a, of a party to, um, to stand in perhaps for the company or, or the board to get separate representation. It's a good, that's another good question, though. Um, if our director, if our misbehaving director seeks to sue, um, there's a recent decision, and I say recent in that it was two weeks ago, about a plaintiff not being able to take the benefit of his own misbehaviour. So it'll be difficult for a misbehaving director to then wheel around and say, oh, I'm, I'm going to misbehave at the board at the director's meeting in order to get my shares out of here, potentially, if there's no shareholders agreement. It'll be difficult for that misbehaving director to take a benefit from her or his misbehaviour. Does that make sense? It's a, so again, it's an easy get out of jail free for me to say, oh, it's case by case. Uh, but it is, I'm afraid. So, so there are certainly circumstances, uh, though, where that would, where that would take place. So um, let's go on holiday to sunny Canberra. Um, here we have a company that owns and operates an eye hospital. The shareholders in the company are a minority, quote, quote, block of 43%, majority, quote, quote, 57%. And what the company does, as I, as I just said, is operate an eye hospital and the shareholders are themselves the eye surgeons. So they're in there on the tools doing surgery and that is the sole source of income for the company. Generate, generating eye surgery work, performing surgeries, getting paid. Uh, over time, our 43% minority retire and they head off to the lush green golf courses of Canberra or, or, or whatever it is you go if you retire in Canberra. Uh, probably somewhere else, I, I suppose. But, uh, but <laughs> Jarvis Bay is a very good suggestion. <laughs> Still in the ACT. Um, and so off they go. And they remain shareholders. So they continue to derive a nice passive income from the majority who are still working away doing eye surgery working away at the hospital. And so they're, they're living the life of Riley. They're having a great time uh, with money coming in while the, the poor old majority, to put, it, to put it in one way, are working very hard and generating income. Now, the, uh, the relationship deteriorates and our majority goes ahead and appoints some sympathetic directors. And we call them the, the majority directors here. A moment arises where 
for the company to get back on track, we need a new surgeon to be appointed. And the majority, in essence, stymie this appointment. They're standing in the way. They require unreasonable things that are set out more fully in the paper. The majority directors place the company into VA um, when it looks unlikely that the company was actually insolvent, and based on its valuation, it almost certainly was not. During the VA, this is a point I want to linger on for a moment, our minority shareholders, our golf, golf, our golf course shareholders, sell. They sell for 1.776 plus a proportion of uh, the stock. So they've cashed out, they've got their money, and they commence oppression proceedings. So what the court finds, and now we're going back to section 232 and section 233, they say section 232, stymieing this new surgeon and placing the company into VA, that's oppressive. And the court says, tick, yep, that is oppressive. That's commercially unfair to do that in all the circumstances. And so having found it's commercially unfair, the court then has a discretion pursuant to section 233. Remember this broad palette of orders. What is the court going to do? Share sale, wind up, amend constitution, other crazy stuff. Who knows? But what the court does is compare, do you remember the minority sold their shares? And they sold their shares for 1.776 and the court crunched through the valuation evidence and found that the majority had overpaid for these shares. They were sold at an overvalue. And so, as a result of the commercial unfairness, the, mon the minority didn't actually suffer any loss. And so, even though Section 232 commercial unfairness was proved, the court did not exercise its discretion to order any remedy because there was no oppression to cure which takes us back to our cost point, which is that our, our poor old directors, or which is to say our golf course directors who proved oppression, they got their big tick. They won on what they characterised as the overwhelming issue, because there was a big argument about costs, because as you can imagine, the costs in this were monstrous. They said, well, we won on the overwhelming bit, the most important bit, the hardest bit, hardest fought bit. And what the court said is, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, uh, congratulations, <laughs> but you didn't get the orders you're after. Costs follow the event, and so you are paying the majority's costs. Yes? Do you have to have suffered a loss then to, to, to be oppressed? You, should, you said there, were, there was oppressive conduct. The short answer is yes, and so the question is when? So the court will then turn its attention to say, okay, right now, today, explain to me, prove, prove to me, in this case, prove through valuation evidence, but we'll look at other paths as well, where the court will say, why, why today, show me the evidence about why an oppression order should be made today. And because the court still retains a discretion, um, it's not bound to make any orders, so even if you roll out the most compelling evidence of all, the court may still say, mm, for other reasons, it's a no. So 
it's necessary to prove you are being oppressed, but it is not sufficient because the court may still say, no, nah, no. Nah. Does that make sense? So, yeah. The oppression is not constituted by the loss. The, 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 the oppression is something different from the loss. Oh. The, the oppression is something different from the loss. So they succeeded on proving oppression, but they didn't succeed on proving the loss. So the, the, the two are not the same thing. That's what Tam is getting at. You don't have to... Oppression itself doesn't mean conduct which causes a loss. That is right. You can have oppression that may or may not cause a loss. And this is precisely an example of that. That's the exact, I, might, I might just repeat that because that's a very useful distillation. So the, the question was, we sort of boiled it down to, so you can have oppression that does not cause a loss? The answer to that is yes. And this is an example of that where the court found there is oppression, which is to say there is commercial unfairness, placing it into VA, styming this surgeon, that's commercially unfair. But precisely as defined over here, there is no loss that can be attributed to that oppression. There's nothing for me to cure, nothing for me to fix. And so you're not getting the orders you're after. So you're paying the other side's costs. I think there was a question here. Can I have that one more time? I'm so sorry, I just didn't hear. Yes, yes. So this is a good question that I'll just repeat. Um, it's a negligence question. So the question was, is the oppression point we're working through similar to negligence, where a party might be, fine, might be found to have had a duty, um, but might be found not to have breached that duty based on the conduct, which is to say... Breached it, but not... Breached it, but not caused damage. So sorry, the party might have had a duty, breached the duty, but the breach did not involve any causation. It didn't cause any damage. Yes, is the answer to that. There's an analogy there. Not identical, but I think it's a really useful analogy. Yes. Hi there. What are your chances of running a case to say <laughs> that you wouldn't have had to have incurred those legal costs had the other party not oppressed you and you've not, been able, not had to take that action? Because I get the 1.7 million yes. was not seen to be a loss, but haven't you now lost by the very fact that you've now had to pay all of the legal costs? Who are we suing? Are we suing the lawyers? Relax, those, those lovely lawyers were doing their... With those, those poor old lawyers. Back to, again, the person that oppressed you. Because yes. you wouldn't have had to have brought that action had they not oppressed you. And therefore, isn't your loss of the legal fees a result of that oppression? I... I sorry, this is a really good question. So, um, the question is, taking our golf course example, our Shanahan and Jatese example, um, is there any... And forgive me if I'm paraphrasing poorly. Is there recourse for our unsuccessful golf course directors to say, we just, suffered, we just had to pay all these legal fees and it's your fault we're suing you for the legal fees. Is that a fair, fair summation? Um, no, poor prospects of that, very, very poor. I don't know what that claim would be. Um, we had to pay legal fees because you beat us, so we're seeing, suing you? No, I can't see it. But only in the circumstances where they have found that their conduct was oppressive? Yes, but... Yeah, that's right. Still, still no is the answer. And the reason is because of that point where they can say, look, you, you know, you can, you can whinge about the way we park in your parking spot or you can whinge about whatever it is, but you need to prove, like you knew at the start, you should have got advice at the start, that you need to prove that you've suffered a loss. Does that make sense? Yeah or nah? Yeah, nah. Would, would the position of the 
proportion of being different in share from the sale price oh, was less than the yep. value? It was literally valuation comparison. You got 1.776, it was only worth 1.x, less than that, bang, you haven't lost anything. But if it was 2 million, then... Yep, if it was 1.775, so, so it becomes, it bounces on a knife edge. This is why we get nervous at mediations and we want people to settle because we don't know how these things are going to go. Yes. That scenario, yes. do they, if that was a forced sale of shares, even though they had a good valuation, but it's essentially a forced valuation because they're going to... Into VA. Into VA. Yep. Do they look at future loss of profits that those golf course shareholders would have had had they not been forced to sell their shares? I, I'm not going to speculate on the valuation method aside to say there was contest about it and the court considered the various appropriate theories that I'm not going to pretend I can explain properly. Short answer, though, is um, it's you know, experts duelling at dawn. Yeah, we should have brought in, oh, that, that new surgeon who we didn't get, we should include that new surgeon's income in the valuation. No, we shouldn't include that new surgeon. Oh, we should take 40% of it. He ended up dying as part of litigation. Oh, we should take as much of the income as we would have earned before he passed away. Poor guy, RIP. But we shouldn't take any income, you, you know. And so it was real dueling expert. Value is at dawn. Hmm. We feel good? We're going to march on to some more? I might have to skip a few. You guys are asking such great questions, and I'm, I'm having such a good time. Um, yes, please. Do you think the solicitors might have had a duty of care to the minority shareholders who brought the oppressive action to say that as soon as um, it became apparent that they were getting out, that they should have ceased and desisted from continuing their action? They certainly had a duty of care. Yeah. Um, did, they have, uh, did they breach that duty of care so by failing to give that advice? I say no. Look, you will find a letter from those solicitors to the clients saying there is a risk of you losing if you accept this. So I'm certain they would have had a duty of care to advise on that. I'm certain, well, I'm certain if it was me, I would have discharged that duty by saying, happy to fight on, let's go knuckle up. Yes, you were oppressed. We're confident, you know, might have said we're confident about that. Our risk is, can we prove loss? Maybe we can. We've got our lovely valuer we like. They've got their valuer they like. Value is at dawn. Who knows? And so there'd be advice on that point. But that's another good question. Did everyone hear that question? That was a, another good one. We've got, I've got five more of these to get through. We might, we might prune a little bit. Um, this one's good fun. It's about wine in a can. Uh, the best way to drink wine, perhaps? Perhaps not. Um, we've got an Australian wine manufacturer. We've got a Japanese can manufacturer. They enter into an agreement. As part of that agreement, our Japanese can manufacturer uh, becomes a 60% shareholder of our Australian wine manufacturer. Our Japanese can manufacturer has a Japanese wine-producing subsidiary. Yes, we're all there. You got, it's so good being in a room where I don't have to explain corporate entities and the way they work. This is fantastic. So our Japanese subsidiary competes with our Australian wine producer, particularly in the China and Japan markets. Short version is the relationship breaks down after our Australian wine producer's performance slackens a bit. Um, our Japanese subsidiary uses a wine canning technique that our Australian wine producer says, oh, that's a breach of... Uh, sorry, oh, we own the patent for that and you should pay licence fees. And the Japanese subsidiary says... Uh, and uh, this deadlock emerges. Our Japanese head company, uh, who is the shareholder in the Australian wine company, says, all right, we're going to wind you up. We've got a deadlock, just an equitable wind-up. 
And remember how I said, or how I hopefully said that the Japanese can producing company became a 60% shareholder in the Australian wine producing company? The 40% shareholder commenced an oppression suit against the Japanese can producing parent company on the basis that they were being oppressed. Now, this is a really fun one, but in short, uh, they went down. The breach of the good faith agreement uh, was not held out. And what was found was that the Japanese company, in allowing the subsidiary to compete with the Australian winemaker, did not engage in commercially unfair conduct. That's a fun, crunchy judgment, but there are some that are more fun and more crunchy that we'll get to. Golf. We spoke golf before. We're down in Victoria. Uh, we've got, uh, sorry, and apparently it's a tough time to be running a golf club. Uh, some of you may have experience with that or, or with similar industries, but uh, apparently it's tough times. And we've got two Victorian golf clubs who uh, resolved to merge, and the way they're going to ensure each other's financial security is one of the clubs is going to sell their course for residential development, and then the members from the sold, sorry, members from the club that has sold its course are going to come and join the other club with a new merged name. So we end up with one golf course, one residential development, money from the residential development funds the continuation of the golf club. I think, I think you guys are with me on that. Great. Um, a disappointed plaintiff uh, wants to unwind the merger on the basis that it is oppressive. And the assertion arises from the director's power to admit new members. Right, so let me just refresh your memory on the structure. Club one, club two. Club one's golf course remains. Club two's golf course is sold. Club one, under a new merged name, admits the members from club two to become one merged club. What is asserted is that the directors of club, whatever club this one is, club one, <laughs> or the newly merged club, uh, club one, uh, were oppressive in that they admitted new members, they used their power to admit new members for purposes not contemplated in the Constitution. What was found there was that that was a breach of the terms of the Constitution, which was found to be commercially unfair. So that's section 232. And now that you guys are probably better corporate oppression lawyers than uh, many litigators in New South Wales, you know that the first step is commercial unfairness. But there's no certainty that that commercial unfairness is going to lead to a Section 233 order. And in this case, uh, it didn't. In essence, our um, disappointed member uh, delayed, he acquiesced in bringing the proceedings. So despite the fact oppression was held out, and despite the fact that there was a remedy that the court could have used to sort of unwind the transaction, the court has this broad discretion. This is why oppression proceedings can be pretty scary, because the court can still say, yep, there's corporate oppression. Yep, I can see why he'd want that relief. Uh, no, no, we're just not going to order it. And in this case, due to the length of time the plaintiff had taken to bring these proceedings, the court said, uh, no, I'm not going to grant that relief. There was an appeal, and the first instance judgment was upheld. Now, just by way of side note, as part of that appeal, 
the sale process, sorry, I'm pointing to the appeal here and I've got our golf course for sale over here. As part of that appeal, sorry, during the appeal or immediately preceding it, um, a sale contract was entered into for the golf course and the disappointed plaintiff attempted to drag in the purchaser into the appeal proceedings and the court uh, refused to grant leave to allow that. And so our merger went ahead, notwithstanding the commercial unfairness that was proven, notwithstanding the availability of a remedy that could have cured that oppression. So uh, the court just said, mm, too slow, delay. This, this is an interesting one. So essentially, if I can get your heads into share sale versus wind up. So this is a question about what section 233 orders shall we make? We've got a first instance decision in Queensland uh, relating to a mining dispute. And uh, leaving the fact aside, the plaintiffs win. They get up on 232. Yes, there was commercial unfairness. They get up on 233 and get a wind-up. That doesn't happen too often. What the unsuccessful defendant at first instance say is, yeah, all right, you've got us for section 232. There was commercial unfairness, but we are appealing the 233 relief. We're appealing the wind-up. We think a share sale is the right way to go. We all grounded in that. So 232 doesn't arise in this matter because everyone agrees, yep, you, you got me. There was commercial unfairness. First instance in the Supreme Court, well, a wind-up ordered. On appeal, the question is, can we roll the first instance judge on the wind-up and get a share sale instead? Yeah? What was found is that the relationship between the various parties was very close. It was one of these quasi-partnership relationships that really relied on the interpersonal trust between all of the parties. Uh, the trust had broken down due to the oppressor's conduct, so directly attributable there. And um, among other things, as the Court of Appeal was working through this up in Queensland, um, there's consideration of this issue as to is a wind-up the last resort? which is to say, do you only order a wind-up if every single other one of your Section 233 remedies has been exhausted? No constitution, no shares out, no this, no that, no the other. The answer in short is, it is not a last resort, which is to say, it is not a remedy only ordered if there's nothing else, but it is an extreme step and it ought to be treated as an extreme step. In these proceedings, it was treated as an extreme step, and it was treated as an extreme and also appropriate step. The reason it's extreme uh, is that a wind-up is serious business, as many of you know, all of you know. We're depriving our shareholders of an investment, employees, third parties, their positions are at risk. But the court worked through all those issues, concluded that a wind-up was an extreme step, accepted that position, and said, notwithstanding the extremity, it is the appropriate step when compared to a share sale. And there were a number of reasons here. Um, the valuation would have been expensive. Uh, if anyone in the room got the work, it would have been a nice, um, nice pay packet, uh, because one of the assets in the company was a chosen action 
for a contract claim that could have been worth about $33 million. So I don't actually even know how you go about valuing a show's in action. Um, perhaps that's, that can be your next session, Adam, actually. That's a, that's a good one. You have to go get senior counsel's advice on prospects. Oh, that'll, be, that'll be good fun. Um, there were doubts about our appellant's capacity to pay if there was a share sale. So as you can imagine, a company of this size was of some value and the appellant saying, I want a share sale, I want a share sale, I want a share sale. The court didn't actually have evidence before it that allowed it to conclude, oh yeah, well, you are a, an entity that has the means to make this purchase. And then it was theoretically possible for other entities standing behind and above our disappointed defendant to fund or to guarantee share sale. And the issue was raised from the bar table as a possibility, as I recall. But what the court said was, well, we don't have anything before us <laughs> that can serve as a guarantee like that. We can't see evidence that these parent companies are going to stand behind the transaction, so what can we do? The answer was, well, we can order a wind-up. And so the answer was, then that is what we will do, and that is what they did do. Okay. Hunter Organic. We're doing well, team. I will... Um, I'll just quickly restate my invitation to interrupt. We had a flurry of questions that led me to, to rip through a couple of these. Um, I love the questions. I love speed as well. It's good fun, efficiency. And for anyone following along, where are we? We're on para 84, page 15. Um, this is a good one. I'll, I'll wind my pace back down again unless... Um, but I'll still have an eye on an early mark for you and a few, and a few questions as well if we can manage it. But we're talking about Hunter and Organic. This uh, is another Queensland decision, uh, an adventure north of the border, uh, relating to an organic goods enterprise. We've got five individuals. Put that down. We've got five individuals. They all become shareholders of the trading entity. The five individuals can be grouped into three groups. And I use the word groups loosely. There's one husband and wife group, a second husband and wife group, and a third individual who, for the sake of this discussion, we'll refer to as a group as well. Each group had one director on the board, so we've got three directors. Originally, the structure is the extreme simple structure that you guys bump into, and it makes you wince, where it is the entity out in the marketplace, buying, selling, doing the deals, taking the risk, owning the assets. That's how things start. And then, um, wisely, I'm sure you'd all agree, um, the entity and the various shareholders and directors get some advice on structuring, and they, there is a restructure. And I'm not going to have to explain this as slowly as I usually would have to to another audience, but let me just run through the restructure. We've got our trading entity. Our trading entity conveys its, its IP in the know-how of running the business over to a new entity. And what our new entity does is charge license fees to our trading entity. And the license fees charged are, surprisingly enough, in the quantum of the profits earned by the trading entity. Does that make sense? So the way we're getting the money out of the trading entity is having our new company charge license fees for the IP and the know-how of running the business. Right. Uh, and so, sorry, just to conclude that, and so our original company, our trading entity is now running bare. Um, and in fact, that's a, you guys know the expression running bare. We said front end, back end earlier. 
running bear to run bear, cool, okay, sorry. Uh, it has nominal assets. So it's, it's operating without assets, it's running without assets, it's running, running bear. Um, so it's got nothing there. It is a trading entity only. Okay. Whereas our uh, newly incorporated entity over here owns the IP. And then, of course, um, how, do, how do we get the assets out um, of our newly created trading entity? Um, uh, they're held on trust for the trustees of the family discretionary trust for each of our groups. Remember, we've got three groups, one husband and wife group, one husband and wife group, one sort of solo group, as it were. So we've got three trustees. Our new entity holds the licence fees on trust for the trustees of the family discretionary um, trustees, and then the family discretionary trustees distribute that. However, the crazy terms of the family discretionary trust um, um, require them to be distributed. Now, the juicy bit is that one family discretionary trust entitles one of the wives in the couple to discretionary distributions only for so long as she remains married to her husband. Uh, through the course of things, they become un... I'm not a family lawyer. I'll use the term unmarried because uh, like that's divorce, separation, divorce... Fam through family law stuff that I know nothing about, um, that marriage breaks down and the two become no longer married anymore. And so our disappointed wife, who is a shareholder, remember, in this original trading entity that used to be a valuable thing out there in the marketplace because it had this IP, it had this know-how, her shareholding in that company now means nothing. She's got no way to get any money out of this, out of this structure because she's not going to take any discretionary benefit from the trust. And she sues. She says, that is corporate oppression. There was a time when I was a shareholder in a valuable entity. As the result of a restructure, my shares in that entity are now, now have nominal value because that entity now has nominal value. There's no way for me to get any value out of this arrangement because my previous entitlements pursuant to the discretionary trust have now gone away because of my, uh, because of my husband. And so I am oppressed. Now, this is fiddly and legalistic, but I hope that it brings you a bit of value. What the court found was, yes, you may have lost some value. So there may be space for a section 233 order to be made, but you failed to satisfy the 232 test because the commercial unfairness element relates to conduct. It relates to a thing someone has done, past thing, a present thing, a future thing that is contemplated. It relates to conduct, someone doing something. What you are complaining about is an outcome. So in circumstances where all parties were advised, where you signed everything, you looked at everything and you worked through the various steps, the commercial unfairness element is not satisfied. You may well be disappointed and you may well be justifiably disappointed that uh, something has happened that has led you having no entitlement to something you've applied your efforts towards. You had advice on that restructure uh, at the time and so despite your genuine disappointment, and I, and I think we could all understand the disappointment there, um, despite the genuineness of that disappointment, there is no relief for you because you haven't proved that there was conduct 
a thing done as opposed to merely a result. And just a disappointing result or indeed a, a negative result or indeed a loss, just a loss of itself is not commercially unfair. There must be conduct as well. And here there was no conduct to attach it to. Just with that one, James, yeah. I would have thought the wife's family lawyer would have... Uh, so did the judge. The judge said, oh, and I note that the plaintiff uh, still has a uh, cause of action available to her in any family law proceedings. So um, for anyone feeling the gripe there of the husband taking a benefit uh, to the wife's expense, my understanding is that uh, she promptly commenced family law proceedings as well and, um, and there was a uh, path for recovery there, appropriately, respectfully. All right, we're doing well. We've got um, perhaps a case in point. We're going to Queensland again. They love oppression. Um, but this is about a uh, Queensland enterprise uh, with two shareholders, 50-50, two directors who are the same shareholders. We're running a, I think it's a strata management agency up on the Gold Coast. Uh, we've got one director shareholder who is in there day to day, managing, directing, talking to employees, taking phone calls, sending emails, doing the, doing the stuff on the tools. We've got one director shareholder who's down in Sydney who has suffered an illness but who is taking no real part in the um, operation of the entity, just down in Sydney doing stuff. Now, a director down in Sydney doing stuff uh, makes an offer to sell his shares. There's no shareholders agreement, as the wise in the room might note. Um, and so... Uh, does not uh, get agreement for the sale of shares that he was after and so uh, undertakes a course of conduct. And this conduct is set out at para 106 if you're inclined to work through it in, in detail. But it's evidence of an irreconcilable deadlock. And it's... Um, look, I don't want to be flippant and say it's good fun, but, but, but this is um, a clear example of commercial unfairness. And I can't, I can't imagine it being much clearer. So we have our Sydney director issuing an invoice for $16,000 of work, which was neither done <laughs> nor even requested, uh, which he admits in cross-examination was just a try-on to try to get some money out of the company. Uh, sets himself an unjustified salary, tries to get reinstated as a financial controller, um, requires all payments, even for minor things like staples, uh, to be uh, the subject of minuted directors' meetings, uh, sends an all-staff email uh, to the effect that the company doesn't have enough money to pay uh, wages or super, uh, refuses to recognise the plaintiff as managing director, just says, no, 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 you're not the, you're not the managing director, uh, and generally, and this is something he accepts uh, in cross-examination, it's put to him, Mr Bloggs, you did all this to uh, hold the company at ransom so you could get what you wanted, is that right? Mr Bloggs said yes. So he agreed with the proposition that uh, all the things he did were in order to hold the company to ransom. Uh, now, as you may be unsurprised to hear, that was commercially unfair and the remedy was a share sale. What you might say is, well, like, wasn't it after a share sale at the start? And what I say a close reader of the judgment will be invited to conclude is that the share sale may not, be, may not have been at quite the value that the Sydney director might have hoped and was indeed subject of valuation evidence. 
We're doing reasonably well. So, sorry, why don't I just linger on that? What I, what I hope you all took from working through those examples of corporate oppression was perhaps not absolute expertise, but perhaps a really progressed understanding of this distinction between 232 uh, commercial unfairness and 233 remedies. So I'll just refresh ourselves. If there's commercial unfairness, the court may make a remedial order pursuant to 233, and we may have a question, I think. Um, it sounds like you can pass 
and your contract doesn't have a clause like that, then we don't have to pay. Yeah? The Court of Appeal uh, found that the exclusion applied. So at first instance, sorry, I should have said, at first instance, the judge says, well, um, despite the fact the lender was not an ADTI, and despite the fact the contract did not have a prudent lender clause, which is to say, despite the fact that it looked like it should have been excluded based on the words in the policy, the absence of the prudent lender clause didn't cause the loss, so it wasn't causative, so you're free to proceed. It, perhaps inevitable that the insurer was going to appeal that one, uh, which it did, and it won um, on the basis that I don't, I, don't, I don't want to get too deeply into exclusion clauses because I do want you to remain awake for the next 10 minutes. But um, in short, the exclusion clause did what it said. It was a means for the insurer to manage its risk profile by identifying the sorts of parties that it would not insure against. And it was a means of granting the parties certainty by saying that if there is the absence of this clause, then there will be no liability for the insurer. So. I'm not sure that's something you guys want to dive in too deeply to, but if you are having a cheeky beer or a cup of coffee with your broker, uh, it might be a nice topic of conversation for four or five minutes to just make sure that everything is as it should be. Right. This is the phase where we return to the very smart question asked at the start of this discussion. So there are some themes that emerge uh, from these decisions. We've got conduct that might kind of feel unfair, but it doesn't lead to recovery. We've got management and control of the corporation being a bit of an issue. Who's controlling it? Who's management, managing it? I want to do this, I want to do that. We've got oppression proceedings in the absence of an exit strategy. Often we've just got disgruntled shareholders who want to get out, and that's what starts leading down our path. And um, without disrespect to any litigants, um, often there's a, there's a personality difference element to these proceedings where sparks fly. So how do we solve it? Um, with a shareholders agreement. Precisely the answer profit at the start of the discussion. Now, at incorporation, your corporate clients should have one. And if they don't have one today, they should have one tomorrow. The, you know, the best time to plant a tree, 20 years ago, the next best time, right now. Uh, and I go through some notes and suggestions as to what that agreement might include. And if you are inclined to perch over your client's lawyer's shoulder or if some of you have a dual qualification, hopefully some of those notes will assist you there, but I don't intend to go through them in detail. James, just yes. one question. With shareholder agreements, mm. would they be considered hand-in-hand uh, -hand with employment agreements? With employment agreements? Yes, particularly director can I repeat that question for everyone? The question was, um, should shareholders' agreements be considered at or around the same time as employment agreements of your senior, senior employees who are going to be shareholders? Short answer is yes. Um, I, I can't contemplate a set of facts we're getting this stuff agreed promptly, as promptly as possible is not a good idea. I, just, I, I, I can't sell to myself the idea that any delay works. Um, I think you want this stuff nailed down 
and that you want shareholders and directors to understand what they're there to do. So I, I just I really agree with sort of the uh, the underlying thrust of the question. If you want to nail down what someone's duties are, what they got to do, what their obligations are, whether part of the employment contract or part of the shareholders contract, uh, uh, shareholders agreement, yes, um, straight away, yesterday, if possible. <laughs> Yes. Um, does the shareholders' agreement have to be signed by each shareholder to be valid? Does the shareholders' agreement have to be signed by each shareholder to be valid? No. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> I am not sure that's the case. Well, lawyers are pretty hesitant to, to give legal advice on the fly. I understand um, that. We, we, can we can enforce an oral agreement. Me and the two other shareholders can have a beer on a Friday evening. Shareholders have never seen it. Founder sets up a shareholders agreement. Yes. Never delivered to investors in the business. Yes. And it has uh, terms which are very one-sided to the founder, and no shareholders know about that. Then there's no agreement. So my answer to that set of facts is you are 100% right. Okay. Now, just a second question. Yes. It's on the fly. No, no, no. If the shareholders actually amend that shareholders' agreement when they discover it... Yes. ..and approve the new amended shareholders' agreement... Yes. ..in the meeting, does that obviate the need then for each individual shareholder to have to sign the amended one? I was asked a similar question today <laughs> about a VA and shareholders approving. Oh, I'm not sure I'm happy to, to respond on the fly. Sorry, the, que the, the question is... It's a tricky one. ..if we don't have... A shareholders agreement in place today and we have a general meeting tomorrow um, where a shareholders agreement is approved is that sufficient to bind all shareholders um, not contractually in fact the one thing that's through not uh, we can we can go and amend the Constitution if we want to fiddle around with the rights of shareholders and we talk about classes and this sort of stuff but if we're talking about it as, as a contractual agreement that, that, that can be sued upon for breach, I think the answer is no. And so then the approach for someone confronting those sort of issues might be to turn to the constitution as opposed to shareholders' agreements. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah? Yeah? I think, I, I think both of those points work together. Yes. So, so, so I agree with that as well, um, that, it's, uh, that the shareholders' agreement itself is a meeting of minds. It's just a contract between whomever enters into it. Just, just one final point on yes. May, is I believe the mechanism that is normally used now is that under the um, share purchase agreement, the vendor or the promoter or the founder has yes. is given a power of attorney to sign the shareholders' agreement on behalf of the investor. I believe that's the mechanism that's meant to be used now. And in this particular case, that was absent. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so it's an interesting... Well, I, I can't comment on that because that's front-end stuff yes. where, the, where the transactional lawyers go do their transactions. So I'll end up sorting through the rubble in three years' time, Donald, probably, <laughs> where, where I find myself. It's a curious area and it it's is. very unclear to a lot of Especially when, when you deal with, this sounds like a stupid term, but sort of post-startups, when things begin casually and you start needing to formalise what's going on, a lot of you will have, will have dealt with the way these things fall apart when there was a casual element to beginning. Hey, we're all just making jam, selling jam on the internet out of Blogsy's garage, but now the revenue's over three mil and we've actually got to sort this out. Um, things can get 
crunchy. Agrees. Thank you, guys. These are great, great questions. Um, so, um, in short, where my head's at is that front end, to use that that legal term, or, or business and corporate advisory, tax advisory professionals, hopefully, are going to benefit from just a slightly augmented understanding of Section 232 and Section 233, uh, and that back-end practitioners um, understand the value of the valuations they have and the value of their ability to work through the transactions that the corporation has gone through. And just as a uh, bit of a uh, bit of a cynical point there, the second one, that um, if the dispute can't be resolved, then perhaps our forensic accounting colleagues can uh, look forward to an appointment as an expert witness for, uh, for things to be litigated. So um, that's about the extent of the talk I had today. We're about made it within about two minutes. Adam, hopefully you're happy with me. And I'd just like to thank you all kindly for your attention. Oh, we have a question. Hello. Yes, yeah, certainly. Is my understanding correct that in the absence of a shareholders agreement, mm. the court orders a sale and it is a minority holding, there is no discount for minority. That is, it's simply a pro rata allocation of the percentage shareholding in the company. Yes, I'm a 30% shareholder. I, I win on oppression. Court orders a sale. Uh, and value, value of the company at a million. I take three hundred thousand. It's fair value, not fair market value. That's often the dispute, and I don't want to comment on fair value versus fair market value because my meagre brain will fall out. But in short, yes. In short, you ought to be able to track back the value of your shares today to a valuation of the entity itself. And so there'll often be reasons for adopting valuation mechanism one, two, three. Julie likes this valuation mechanism. She makes her arguments to the court as to why, and Jane prefers this marketing mechanism um, for various reasons. The court will decide upon which one to employ. It will value the thing, and then your 30% of the thing will be pro rata, precisely as you say. Yes. Would that be any different in the case where there was no oppression, but then there was a share sale still ordered? So would you still apply that? Um, I don't know a circumstance where a share sale would be ordered in the absence of corporate questions. Uh, talked about one earlier. I may have misled you, because I, it, it, and the reason I speak with some confidence is, is, that, is, that, is that I'm trying to do it at the moment. <laughs> and this is the only path I've managed to find. So, so... I may, I may have misled you slightly, so I might recap a moment. The, the ability to order a share sale is only enlivened if there is commercial unfairness. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so, so sorry if I've, if I've been a little, a, little, a little vague on that. It would be common if, if perhaps you, there was mediation before that stage that you would have a share sale, because that's going to be the end result anyway. That's what they want. There might be mediation, and in which case you would just value it as you this is a very good question, um, uh, 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 two very good questions in a row. Um, if there, were, there was litigation contemplated that there'd be a mediation before the final hearing and a share sale may be agreed pursuant to that, yes is the short answer. And indeed that's what happened in our golf club case. That agreement for a share sale was part of a mediation. Thank you all kindly, really appreciate it.
Uh, I think you can all agree that uh, James is a rising star in the space of corporate oppression, and I'm sure his star will shine very brightly for years to come. Um, 